0: so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to what do You Miss This Week? I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Romaine Bostick, Taylor Riggs, and Joe Weisenthal. What'd You Miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, markets digested both virus fears and vaccine hopes. The US continued to see record numbers of COVID-19 cases across the Sunbelt, while Gilead offered some hope for treatment with the announcement that their drug, Remdesivir, had decreased coronavirus deaths by 62%. Against that backdrop, tech vastly outperformed the broader market for most of the week. Gains from big names like Apple, Google and Facebook were enough to push indices into the green, but the divergence between big tech and the broader market kept growing. We touched on these themes with Chris Aylman, the chief investment officer at Calsters. it's the California state teachers retirement system, which has close to $230 billion in assets under management. We started by asking him well, how he was thinking about this market and a rally that is being led by increasingly fewer companies that are getting bigger and bigger.
1: Yeah, the narrow leadership is is definitely concerning. We've seen that in the past. If you go all the way back to the 80s and the 90s, it has happened. Um, and it doesn't mean that the market's going to correct on those names. Usually, the rest of the market comes back up and those names kind of go steady. This time, I'm not so sure. I mean, those stocks are stay at home stocks. And this is a health crisis. At some point, we're going to resolve that health crisis. And people are going to look at those valuations and question, are they going to keep going through the roof? So the narrow leadership does concern me. Uh, Look at the value stocks. I mean, value stocks are negative year to date. It is really, it's not just growth. It's these handful of growth companies, as you mentioned. All
0: the. Where, therefore, in value can you start to look? Or where is there ripe for opportunity? Well, you know,
1: really, uh, it is all about uh, backing up, Caroline, and looking at asset allocation, and how are you going to mix your portfolio? You really just can't uh, uh, shift between value and growth at this point. I think there are too many risks on the horizon. Uh, It is really a big concern about this market.
2: Value versus growth, a big debate. How are you positioning Calsters in the value versus growth rotation?
1: Well, we're going to try and stay fairly neutral because we don't want to underweight value too much, but we are a little bit overweight growth. And if you look at today's sell-off, you know, I'm surprised to see things like the banks and the financials getting hurt substantially, which should be value plays. So with interest rates at zero, they're in good position. But again, it's that question of uh, stay-at-home stocks versus uh, back to the real economy uh, and that bifurcation we're seeing between Main Street and Wall Street. It is so tough to figure this out. You're gonna have, uh, 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 talk to uh, the Yale professor later in about an hour. And I really am curious about the Schiller index and the CAPE ratio and where we are in the valuations. I fear that we're really overvalued.
0: Interesting, we'll be speaking to Robert Schiller in a moment. Thanks for that plug, Chris. I'm interested in where you think is unloved at the moment that shouldn't be and how much you say Main Street versus Wall Street, how much the retail investor is worrying you or you think they're making the right calls?
1: Uh, the retail investor definitely worries me because of that Robin Hood uh, trading impact. You basically have uh, millions of people who normally would be at the office and stuck in meetings, but they're at home and they're looking at their Bloomberg terminals and they're day traders. Uh, the market is not following normal moving averages. It's not behaving as we would typically expect. So uh, I think that's another phenomenon of this stay-at-home uh, situation that will change over time when – the health crisis is resolved.
2: Chris, there's been a long debate within the public pension sector about doubling down on leverage effectively to, pay, to play catch up as liabilities still uh, outweigh assets. Are you doubling down, uh, perhaps going into more risky sectors, in effect to play catch up given that liabilities are still uh, weighing out more than assets?
1: Great question, Taylor. You're right on a very topical discussion among CIOs. I know Ben Ming at CalPERS, uh, the larger fund in California, has talked about adding leverage to his portfolio. I was on a call yesterday with a group of CIOs in the USA, and there are a few very modest leverage, maybe 10%, 15% leverage. Leverage cuts both ways. It's great on the upside, but it is twice as painful on the downside. So, People are looking at that, but that's a risk play, and that puts a lot of pressure on the taxpayer. And and personally at CalSTRS, I don't think that's the right stand. We're underfunded. Our job is to just try and make a steady return and not take added risk by leveraging up the fund dramatically. But it will be a discussion, I think, going across the country for the next year.
0: What else were the CIOs all talking about? What has got you most animated, most focused at the moment?
1: Well, you know, uh, Caroline, it really is about uh, U.S. versus non-U.S. versus emerging markets. Emerging markets have been cheap. They've been cheap for over a year, and they're still cheap because they're not equipped to deal with this health crisis. But people recognize they're always looking for opportunities. And the USA is so overvalued. Uh, You know, when we look back at the last year, ending at June 30, what's amazing is those top growth stocks produced a 25 percent return. 30-year government bonds in the USA produced a 25% return. Then outside the US, one of the next highest countries is New Zealand. I mean, it's a tiny market. So it's trying to figure out where you can get returns and then how the private markets are going to perform in this environment. We just really don't have a good feeling about real estate and private equity. Uh, Where the valuations are, those markets will come back, but not till the health crisis is resolved.
0: Chris. Your take, you say that, you know, eventually the health crisis will end, things will revert. But at the moment, it's trying to look for those pockets of where's been underperforming and where's ripe to get in. I was interested that you were noting about the time for emerging markets or perhaps outside of the U.S. Where do you see the U.S. dollar in all that picture? Does it have to remain flat or indeed weaker?
1: Well, that's a great point because uh, I think it's going to continue to be strong for a period because the major developed markets, obviously the UK uh, and then and Europe are still struggling and Asia is still struggling. However, we're spending a ridiculous amount of money, fiscal and monetary stimulus, but the fiscal stimulus, uh, we're gonna have to pay that back at some point. All this extra money we're paying uh, the citizens to survive this health crisis at the municipal and the state and then especially at the federal government level, that's gonna put pressure on the dollar issuing debt It's nice that they're able to reduce the amount of T-bills because they're rich with cash right now, but I think in a couple of years, we're going to see the dollar under weakness, mostly because interest rates are going to have to climb as we uh, finance this immense structural debt.
2: Chris, fold and then some assumed dollar weakness into some international equities. Are there any considerations and talks about further, um, better, higher growth internationally than relative to the U.S. as you think about how you're allocating uh, strategically and tactically within your portfolio?
1: Well, most of the global investors, and as you mentioned earlier, both Caroline and, and you, Tyler, mentioned, the other CIOs are talking about We have global portfolios, so that our weighting is roughly 52% in the USA, 48% outside the U.S. And then the outside the U.S. is really dominated by Europe, U.K., and then Japan. It's tough to find growth in those markets, so you hit it on the head. There is not a lot of opportunities in other markets the stay-at-home stocks are U.S. companies and they are dominating the world. So I think that's going to be one of the challenges going forward is the the regional nature of where you want to be, Japan, big questions about China and, and just its regulations and access to that market, uh, and then whether Europe really can turn the corner without the U.K. being part of it. So it's not a panacea. It's still going to be a heck of a challenge. But I think, you know again, to plug Robert Schiller, Grill him on the on the cape ratio and and where u s stocks are valued when you look out the next twelve months with all the risks we have a health crisis, and then oh by the way, we have a major election, and i 'm not sure that election is going to go smoothly at all
0: before we get on to the election risk, what is your take on real estate
1: uh, real estate 's a huge question i 'm not surprised that the University of Michigan survey would be positive because rates are low. But people are not walking through homes, and I don't know anybody that's going to buy a home virtually. Uh, Most of the home sales, I think the realtors have admitted, were people that had already seen the property ahead of time before we had all this shutdown. So, And and in commercial real estate, where we invest, uh, it's impossible to figure out the value of a mall. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. empty, and, and half the tenants aren't paying rent. So, uh, and the, we're really having a good, big discussion about commercial real estate when it comes to office buildings. Once this is all resolved, and let's say we're back to business as usual, I don't know that all the workers are going to need to come into the building. We've all learned to be able to work from home. So, huge questions ahead for real estate. I think it's still going to be a worthwhile area to invest in, but we are really have got to get through a lot of things. and and there are no transactions, so it's tough to figure out the price at this point.
2: And Chris, with rates so close to zero, and this is a very serious question, I know one you get a lot, how are you thinking about your actuarial assumed rate of return and that discount rate? Are the days of seven, 8%, reasonable at this moment or do public pension plans need to be more realistic and come down to let's say a five or a six percent I know that that balloons the liabilities but is that a more realistic picture uh, given that we are lower for longer within this rate scenario
1: you hit it on the head again uh, Taylor it If I look at over the next three years, 7% is challenged, although with zero interest rates, it means the Fed is pushing everybody into risk assets again. And so we saw that in 2010, 11, 12, where risk assets produced as much as double-digit returns. Your fixed income side of the portfolio, you're really gonna drop the assumptions, but that's gonna push people into credit, high yield, leases, other areas where they think they can find opportunities. If I look out over 10 and 20 years, which is where my liabilities are amortized over, that longer-term picture, I still think seven is a realistic number. I know I'll get criticized by that from a lot of people. In the near term, it may be tough. But over the long term, I think it's doable. But look at our fixed income allocation. We're at only about 13% in fixed income. Most pension plans are at 20% or below because they realize that the Fed is going to keep interest rates at zero for a long time. So it's still a focus in on risk assets. And I think we'll see private equity come back in 2021, 22, real estate come back in that environment and take advantage of these cheap rates.
0: Let's talk in the nearer term, at least out for the rest of this year. I keep talking about it and I want to get your opinion on election risk. And indeed, whether the Biden risk is a positive one, a negative one for the assets which you hold and how much the market is really pricing it in?
1: You know, I'm not a politician, so I'm not gonna try and call this election. But what I think is a risk that the markets will really focus on, probably not until about September, is the risk of a contested election. Um, I really am fearful that this election is not gonna go smoothly. We Mm. still will have a health crisis. Questions about mail-in ballots, Uh, We may really find, just like the the Gore-Bush election, and while that was only Florida, we may find this one locked up in the courts into November, December, and I hope not, but into January. That's not gonna be good for the US markets or the global markets. So I think more than a discussion about which party might win or not, it's gonna be a discussion about whether it's a smooth election or whether it's a contested election and we have trouble.
0: Then we spoke with Nobel Laureate and Yale economics professor Robert Schiller about the state of the US property market. It surprised economists by rallying in the midst of the pandemic. But this week, we learned that the coronavirus may drag down home values after all. A new projection from CoreLogic predicted that prices will fall about 6.6% over the next year, the first annual decline since 2012. That's as the economic damage from the pandemic deepens. We started by asking Professor Schiller, how concerned he was about the price drops over the next year.
3: Uh, yeah, well, I, I looked at the CoreLogic report that you mentioned. Uh, I think it's a reasonable forecast. I, I'm not sure that uh, I, I, the declines, I think, will differ by region or, or more by urban versus suburb. I'm, I'm thinking that home price declines will be bigger in downtown areas where apartment buildings have elevators mm. <laughs> and you've you worry about social distancing. Uh, so I, I, am, I am worried about home prices. But you look at their forecast, I, you know, it's not, the, it's not the end of the world. Uh, and I think uh, it may not happen. There's other up positive indicators as well.
4: Yeah, I mean, this has sort of been uh, an interesting market here uh, for a lot of different assets. Obviously, uh, we saw a lot of uh, people sort of embrace, uh, in in equity markets that is, embrace some of those home builders because we did see uh, home sales, at least in certain parts of the country, uh, remain resilient. And of course, uh, Professor, we've also seen overall the equity market obviously shoot to record highs, at least for the NASDAQ uh, indexes, and the S&P isn't that far behind. I'm curious as to how you put this into context with an economy that is still hobbled uh, and a health crisis that is still not solved.
3: Well, one thing you have to keep in mind in the background is low interest rates. And uh, they're so close to zero that this is unusual territory. And that affects everything. So bond prices are high, house prices are high, stock prices are high. Uh, and you can't get away from that. you got to put your money somewhere. Uh, and uh, the other thing is the COVID-19, we're not sure whether it's a temporary thing or, or will lead to lasting scars. I'm worried that it will lead to lasting scars uh, and that the, the really urban situation is not going to be quite as strong in years to come. Uh, we'll, I, I, I'm still trying to assess how, how much uh, uh, the psychology of, of of social distancing is going to stick with us. Uh, I hope it doesn't stick too long after it's necessary. Hmm.
2: Professor, we were speaking with Chris Ailman in the last hour, the chief investment officer of CalSTRS, one of the largest public pension funds in the country. He was desperate to get your thoughts on the CAPE ratio, which we know that you started back in 1998, that significantly adjusted (laughs) PE ratio. (laughs) 88, thank you for correcting me. On that valuation, how do valuations look on that basis?
3: Well, it's high. It's, uh, it's in the, I haven't checked it in the last few days, but it's in the vicinity of 30, uh, where the historical average, I take it all the way back to 1881, the historical average is more like the high teens. So it's high, but it's been high for a while, and it's been higher. In 2000, the CAPE ratio got up over 45 uh, so that, it could go up from here. It certainly could. I just think of it as a kind of risky situation where our models, which were estimated over uh, historical data, may not apply now. And you know, it's uh, it, you have to use your your sense of psychology and human history to judge what might happen now.
0: Indeed, many. Sort of fall on their sword of looking at history when we meet such unprecedented times, Professor Schiller. In terms of also the psychology of the retail investor and the hype that we get around certain stocks like Hertz that we've seen when when basically was a bankrupt company. This is something you've been thinking a lot about the psychology and in particular about how the media affects that as well. If you had to be a betting man, which I'm sure you're not. Where do you think do you think that this rally can be sustained, and do you think that retail is going to feed into that in the same way as institutional buying?
3: It, well, institutional investors, I think, according to my I have questionnaire survey data on my website, uh, institutional investors are, are more confident than at the moment than about a possible crash uh, than our retail investors, who are more uh, dramatic, I think. Uh, so, you know, we've been worrying about a crash, because it, the word depression is in the air. Uh, and we've seen the highest unemployment rates uh, since the Great Depression. Uh, it's starting to recover now, at, for, the, for the moment. Uh, but the, the narrative that has developed has been a, a, a scary one. There's also the problem of the affect heuristic that psychologists talk about. If you're scared by one thing, you tend to be scared by everything for a while. And so we, we were really got a scare from this COVID-19, and it isn't over yet. So I think this is just very risky times for all of these markets.
5: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com.
1: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: And then we caught up with the industry veteran Rob Arnott. Is the chairman and co-founder of Research Affiliates, a sub-advisor to money managers which advises on over $195 billion in investment assets, including those at PIMCO, to get his market insight. We touched on everything from valuations to election risk and started by asking what he made of tech's outperformance.
6: Well, it's not that the tech stocks are trying to drive the markets higher, it's that the uh, Uh, A lot of investors, notably retail investors, are pouring money into these um, uh, what are often called FANG plus names. Now, what I think is interesting is um, the valuations are now stretched for growth relative to value stocks wider than it was at the peak of the tech bubble. Well, that was the biggest global bubble in history. And uh, I, I never thought I would see valuation spreads as wide, let alone wider than at the peak of the tech bubble. But that's where we are. We're in a bubble uh, or at least certain names are in a bubble. Now the problem is betting against a bubble is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, Bubbles persist until they burst. Uh, A virtuous cycle of stocks rallying, drawing investor interest, drawing more money in uh, continues until it turns into a vicious cycle of money starting to flee. And then you can get a crash in many of the same names
4: yeah i'm curious i'm I'm glad you brought that up i mean we were taking a look a little bit earlier uh, at the nasdaq 100 right now it's forward p.e at 28.2 which is basically the exact peak peak that it had uh, back in uh, december of uh, 2004. Uh, so this is uh, getting to uh, some pretty lofty levels at least on a uh, narrow basis i guess Uh, Rob, a lot of folks would then point to Fed policy. They'll point to the weaker dollar. They'll point to a lot of these other metrics that are indicating support for risk assets. And I'm wondering, how do you sort of invest around that idea here that maybe some of the normal fundamental factors of the market are being skewed a bit by the monetary policy support?
6: Well, they're being skewed a great deal. Uh, I think we're skating on a knife edge, that is to say, Markets can persist higher or they can break. Um, reduced spending by consumers wary of the uh, resurgence of COVID cases uh, are pouring money into markets rather than spending their stimulus checks. And those uh, it's well known that uh, those who've been addicted to sports gambling are now pouring that money into <laughs> stock gambling with Considerably less expertise than they brought to the sports arena. Uh, there's also the issue of uh, uh, so-called TINA. There is no alternative with zero yields. If you're going to put money away, you may as well put it into stocks at any price. And retail investors, uh, of course, are chasing the uh, market darlings. Now, when fiscal and monetary stimulus don't promote spending, and these $3 trillion of stimulus and counting, uh, certainly don't seem to be promoting much in the way of spending. It goes into Wall Street creating asset bubbles rather than Main Street. Um, but at what price? When uh, Amazon announced its earnings in at the end of April, uh, they closed that day at 111 times earnings. Uh, that's trailing earnings, not forecast earnings. Um One of my colleagues did a simple discounted cash flow model. He assumed Amazon grows at 20% per year compounded for the next decade. That's enough to make Amazon 10 times its current size in 10 years, Hmm. 10 times. That would make it bigger not only than the entire retail marketplace in the U.S., but the entire retail marketplace globally. Now, if that were to happen, it's worth 70 times uh, earnings today. Okay. So now it's stretched north of 120 times. Watch out. It's a great company. I get my daily Amazon deliveries, but um, it's priced as if it will be a world straddling superpower bigger than the entire global retail sector. Wow.
2: Rob, tie in to me two themes that we've touched on lightly here. You talk about the discount cash flow and you've also mentioned zero yields. I'm trying to figure out if our fundamental models are still working with yields at zero, if that's, I guess, the number that you're plugging in to discount those cash flows. And if the fundamental models now even still work with all the Fed interjection here, do we need to reshape the way we're thinking about some of these models and how we're evaluating these companies?
6: Well, firstly, um, you allude to something very interesting, and that's if you plug zero into your discount model, the value of a company is quite simply the sum of all of its future earnings um, for decades in the, and potentially even a century or two to come. Uh, so the valuation rises, the fair valuation ostensibly rises to near infinity. Now. The problem, the failing in that assumption is what's sometimes called the denominator problem, which is uh, you're discounting at a lower and lower rate, but low rates go hand in hand with lower growth. So if the growth slows just as much as the discount rate falls, they cancel Hmm. and relative valuation uh, does not go up. Now, where this gets interesting is if you look at the U.S. currently trading nearly 30 times the 10-year smoothed historic learnings, compare that with Europe at 16 times and Japan at 18 times. um, Okay, they're half off relative to the U.S., but their rates are even lower. So if zero rates mean higher valuations, then why is Europe even cheaper than the U.S.? Why is Japan even cheaper? Uh, That's the failing of the assumption that low interest rates mean higher forward-looking returns.
0: You said at the very start of all of this, Rob, that betting against a bubble is very dangerous. But at some point, there comes a tipping point when we see risk aversion. Today, once again, it's coronavirus that's in front and centre of everyone's mind. But added to it is election risk that's going on. And this is something we're starting to hear voiced by more and more people joining the show. Yesterday, we spoke, of course, with Chris Aylman, who's over at Calsters, worrying about the election risk and how you factor that in. Just take a listen to him for a moment.
1: I'm not going to try and call this election but what i think is a risk that the markets will really focus on probably not until about september is the risk of a contested election um, i really am fearful that this election is not going to go smoothly we still will have a health crisis questions about mail-in ballots uh, we may really find just like the the gore bush election and while that was only florida We may find this one locked up in the courts into November, December, and I hope not, but into January. That's not going to be good for the U.S. markets or the global markets.
0: You worried about election risk? You worried about any key risk that drives this market lower, that pops that
6: bubble? Oh, I'm worried about a lot of risks. Um, uh, While I admire Chris Ailman a great deal, I'm not too worried about a contested election. The 2000 Mm. election was was truly... uh, Uh, so close in Florida uh, the difference was 0.01% okay that's not likely to happen Uh, contentiousness relating to mail-in ballots sure Uh, closely contested election in which um, uh, feelings are very high on both sides sure Um, uh, to me uh, one of the uh, if if Biden wins, uh, one of the things I would hope for is that the Senate doesn't flip because uh, I think there's benefit to having uh, a split government that um, moderates the more extreme views of either side. So, uh, but is that going to happen? I don't know. I think at this stage, if the election were held tomorrow, it'd be a, a, a Democratic sweep. But uh, uh, three months is an eternity in politics. <laughs> so. Uh, Uh, it's anybody's guess how this is going to play out. Uh, One thing that I like to say in public speaking is we're, uh, going to be choosing between somebody who wants to run $2 trillion deficits, as far as the eye can see, against somebody who wants to run $3 trillion deficits, as far as the eye can see. And I'm not sure which one is which.
4: <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, so the lines have definitely been blurred when it comes to uh, deficit spending uh, right now, Rob. I, I just, I mean, staying on that point, though, there is a general sense here uh, when you talk about the involvement of the Fed in financial markets, at least to stabilize financial markets, uh, the unprecedented fiscal re- response that we've had to the COVID-19 crisis and proposals by both major candidates here in the U.S. Uh, that would most likely uh, accelerate and, or at least sustain current spending levels. I'm curious as to whether you think that becomes an impediment at all uh, for risk assets and for the economy itself.
6: Well, one of the biggest consequences of um, massive fiscal and monetary stimulus uh, is that it can fuel uh, one of two things. It can fuel either a bubble in asset prices, as it did in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, and as it has done since March this year, uh, or it can fuel a bubble in uh, prices of goods and services. If you distribute massive quantities of of money and it is spent by the end consumer, that creates a surge in inflation. So I would view inflation as becoming a very serious risk on a two to three year horizon and a much bigger risk than most people realize. People think inflation is dead and gone because unemployment is so high and there's no wage price pressures, but companies have to be able to turn a profit on the goods and services that they sell And the cost of producing them has gone through the roof with social distancing. I don't see the social distancing going away nearly as fast as the COVID fears.
0: That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our daily market close show from 3.30 to 5pm on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5pm streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.